There's an area in the southern Philippines rife with tribal chiefs, fiefdoms, warlords, and private militia. The first time I went, we were advised to never go anywhere without a local, because they knew where the boundaries were, and they would know with whom we needed to coordinate to gain access to certain areas. Mind you, there were no walls or visible borders or sentries, and yet it seemed all the locals knew who owned what, or rather, who ruled over which plots of land and villages. On top of that, there was also a separatist struggle being waged then by Muslim fighters. Such factionalism is not isolated to that area and is at the root of many issues in the archipelagic Philippines. By no means is this the only place in the world like this. We recently had a guest on the podcast from a country that no longer exists, decimated by such factionalism. So, if geography isn't enough of a marker on which to rest one's identity, what is? Joining me is Nick de Inchausti. He heads the Inchausti Foundation, which seeks to preserve the past to inform the present. When you talk to people here, one of the first questions is, so where's your province? You know, where are you from? That's how they define themselves. Well, I'm, I'm Bicolano, or I'm Ilocano, or I'm Capampana. Yeah. yeah, you know, and they, they kind of create a sense of not belonging to the space in which they're in. Isn't that pretty common here in Metro Manila, right? And then you have all these connotations of what it means to be an Ilongo, what it means to be a Ilocano, you know. They're like this, or they're like that, or the Tagalogs are, you know, arrogant, and the Kapampangans are good chefs, good cooks. So when you talk about how are we define ourselves, it's almost like we have to kind of bring it back first to look at how are people defining themselves in their, within their localities. How are they linking themselves to the locality in which their ancestors come from, and then how are they linking themselves to their ancestors? Because if you talk to some chefs out there, they say, oh, I'm the eighth generation chef. So that's how he defined right. himself. And then he's from Pampanga. So he said, I'm from this line of chefs in Pampanga, and we're all like this, right? But how do you do that on a national level? Well, that's something else. <laughs> like, are Filipinos Asian? Are Filipinos Hispanic? Are Filipinos Pacific Islanders? Okay, so we're going back to identity, right? How do you define your, yourself, your place of belonging? And at least for me, you have to start identifying yourself within your nation as not a political concept, but a cultural concept. We're people who are, you know, for lack of a better term, we're resilient. Americans will go to, we're freedom lovers. We love our opportunity. We love this. We love that. Like, that's how Americans look at themselves. Spain has yeah. their own concept of themselves. You can almost identify within a, a few sentences. If you go to Singapore, for example, and, and you go through their National Museum, they've carefully crafted a narrative built around their struggle, their post-Malaysia exit, and their attempt to become the center of commerce and investments in Southeast Asia. Even when you go down to the syncretism that's taking place within their culture. So you have, they have all these elements, the Puranicans, you know, things like that. They, they look at that and they've come up with a narrative that's inclusive to some extent. And that's the narrative that they then portray to everybody. That, that's what's taught to people. This is our national narrative. We, yeah. we don't have a national narrative when you think about it. Our narrative as a country is still very much captured by that old 19th century form of history, which is the great men and women. We define ourselves not by ourselves as a cultural and national body, but we define ourselves by who has led us. 
And that actually mm-hmm. ha- that actually creates difficulties when it comes to defining who you are as a nation, because then it, it becomes these binaries that we're very familiar with. You know, I'm I'm a yellow. I'm I'm a pro Marcos guy. You know, it, it, that doesn't tell you anything. It just says that that's who you adhere to. If I ask you, what's the narrative of that story? And and you see, we're defining ourselves by the externalities, not how we relate right. to those externalities. If you ask an American, so tell me about the United States in the 20th century. Well, we fought World War One. We beat the Germans. We fought World War Two. We beat the Nazis. We went out there, yeah. we lost in the Vietnam War, we built a country of prosperity, we're Camelot on the hill, we're the land of the free and the home of the brave. Boom. Done. They define it. They're not going to say like, well, you know, Reagan was president and then Bush was president and, and you know, I like Bush, I didn't like Clinton. You go to Japan and they're going to more or less going to be like, yeah, well, World War II happened and then we spent the rest of the time building up this great country. Yay. We've maintained our cultural and historical sensibilities of centuries you know we are japan we're eternal you go to china and they'll say like well we're the middle kingdom we've always been the center of the world you know we're now just reasserting ourselves so you come to us and we're like yeah well we were colonized we lost the war we got invaded marcus took us over and he's great then there was edsa and akino took us over and she was bad and then we had you know what's the story that creates your identity maybe it's it's simplistic there's whole studies on this but ultimately, that it really drills down to that. What is your story? What is your story conveying to create a sense of communalism? So first of all, the Philippines is a tropical archipelago of over 7,000 islands, about 2,000 of which are inhabited. The country is located in Southeast Asia. And it is the largest island nation without any land borders or shared island territory with another nation. So we're, yes. we're talking about geopolitics, right? And the geopolitics of identity, which is empire. Get right down to it. In 1543, an expedition was led to the islands, naming them Philippines, in honor of Philip II of Spain. Interestingly, for two of the largest empires in in history, we, as a a colony, helped define Mm. them. Spain, you know, Mm. they had the empire in Latin America, but when they acquired us, they became the empire where the sun never set. And that was part of the politics of the period, the geopolitics of the period between Portugal and Spain. And for better or worse, we did play a central role in the establishment of two eras of global trade. We were the center of trade in, in Southeast Asia. Then with the Americans, we were what helped them create the American era, the American century. It wasn't Puerto Rico, it wasn't Costa Rica, it wasn't any of those. It was us. We were their attempted projection of American, not might, but of Americanism in the sense of we're bringing freedom around the world. We're bringing civilization. We're bringing all of that, you know. Democratic values. values, Exactly. We were the first experiment. And the United States has continued to repeat the errors that they made here elsewhere around the world. First, the islands were yeah. made part of the Spanish Empire. Right. Prior to that, it didn't really have a unifying identity. No, it didn't. You know, here this was a colonial a, power imposing borders, as it were, right? right? Here's, here's the part that I think kind of gets a little overlooked. They didn't just impose external borders, but they imposed internal borders with the creation of formal communities. And right. the resettlement of indigenous peoples and the resettlement of, of what became Filipinos or the natives, right? They moved them into communities. So they took them out of whatever, wherever they were, however they were formed as a political or, or cultural entity. You know, mostly they were, for lack of a better word, headship sort of loose organizations, you know, 100 people underneath one person, 50 right. people underneath one person. You know, Americans would use the word tribe. We still use that here. And they tried to bring them into a formal political 
structure oriented around the church for the first hundred or so years. They were trying to create new community boundaries with the formation of towns. If it was around headships, I suppose this would be maybe where communities were, from the earliest of times, defined according yes. to families, wasn't it? Because back yes. then the community was very much the head of the family and right. then the families that lived around that family and one yes. being the more dominant over the others. And what's interesting is there was also defined very defined social hierarchies, which were some of the things that carried over into the Spanish era and into the American era. There was indentured servitude. There was slavery. There was one person who ruled them all. And, okay, so here's what we can talk about a little bit about the idea of history as a formation of identity, right? Modern context. This attempt for members in the diaspora and younger generations to tap into what they consider the perfect Filipino past, whatever you want to call that through the use of adoption of things like Baybayan, you know. Right. But Baybayan was a Tagalog regional uh, writing form, writing system. The funny part is by trying to transliterate that across the Philippines, archipelago, they're actually engaged in a little bit of cultural imperialism. This brings it back to one point, which is that we're grasping for signs or signifiers that have continuity throughout our history. But what we're not even looking at is the indigenous peoples that still exist. Because right. those are the cultures that have survived. Those are the cultures that have influenced and informed as much as Spain who we are. Because we always like say, oh, we're not authentic. We have all these, right. we borrowed all these things. Look at yeah, what else is culture? What else is nation? What else is identity except the adoption of external influences and syncretizing them with with indigenous cultural markers. The process of acculturation is not passive. There is active acceptance and redefinition. Mm. And that's where you arrive at what is the identity? What are you as a country when you right. look at it over, over centuries? But then even that, I mean, yeah. you have many different indigenous communities. You do have many, yes, you do. With and, different identities, you know, with right. different ways of living or attacking the world, is it even a worthwhile effort to put something together to, to believe that there's a, a national culture as opposed to what you mentioned earlier, where each clan or each mm -hmm. tribe has its own definition of who they are to the exclusion of others and treating others as indeed separate from them? And I think you kind of touch on it again, which is defining as separate, the definition yes. of other, right? Because the definition of other or define yourself in opposition to another, is what creates politics of resentment, the politics of anger, the politics of dissolution, which is kind of what we're seeing right now in the West. Anglo-Americans are defined mm -hmm. as the dominant caste, and they're defining everybody else as others to them, yes. which is what's creating a lot of the issues in the United States, because they don't have the space within their definition of who they are to allow for things like Black Lives Matter. The idea of just even defining that is already infringing upon their dominance. Right. And that's also what we've, an issue that we've had here. We have this issue of lowland and highland and imperial Manila versus everybody else. So how do we move past that? And I don't think it's a problem to have a regional identity. But how does that regional identity then interact with the ones around it? That's the tension point. And I think that's something where you can bring in national ideas of, let's say, we're resilient. We survived the centuries. We are who we are. You know, we're unique within Asia. We're Roman Catholic. We're this, we're that. We're everything. 
We're literally a melting pot. Right. Maybe that's how we approach it. Maybe that's how we look at it. But I think in finding those commonalities, because there will be commonalities, even if the commonality is fighting the Spanish, we're brothers in this fight against empire. Yes. So is it you a know. matter then of defining yourself against something external? Is that always going to be how people or nations will define themselves as opposed to finding it within them? It's always easier to define yourself against something external, right? I mean, that's always the simplest thing because it creates a very simplistic binary. This is me, that's you. You're like this, now I get to be like this. But it also leaves us without an anchor. And when you're talking about the importance of identity, where it really becomes important is that it creates an anchor for you. And it's an anchor outside of political affiliations. It's an anchor outside of even familial relations because it's an anchor that situates yourself within a people and ideas and ideals and ethics and values. And I think that's what, in a sense, we're missing a little bit. And I think that's really where we have to start moving towards if we want to survive. Let's be honest, as a nation, we're just kind of careening from being one neocolonial subject to another. We're just shifting from spheres of influence. We've kind of moved away from being a neocolony of the United States, even if really it never happened. And now we're trying to situate ourselves within the China's sphere of influence. That's kind of where it is. And then the interesting part of China is, is the use of history as well to try and, and link us to them. It's an yeah. abuse of history because it's not actually founded on anything really other than loose trade relationships, but they're trying to use it to say we've always been part of them or we've always been linked to them. And so right. they're, they're, they're creating a narrative of a shared history and a shared identity then. There is a very good example of the use of history and geopolitics and geography and caste, the idea of subordinate relationships, to inform modern-day identity. So China has looked at us and said, Okay, within those old trading relationships, we're their vassals. Geographically, we are located within the areas that they claim. So within their context, they look at us and they say, oh, no, of course. They're yeah. subordinate to us, but they're part of us. And we're bringing them home. And it's a very strong narrative. Look at a lot of people here who believe that narrative because they say, oh, we're Asian. Of course, we're part of China, even if Asia as an identity doesn't exist. But here, that's still a strong impulse. It's not hard for, for us to go find somebody who, who would say, yes, of course, we, we're closer to them than we are to, to Spain or to Mexico or to the United States. China is becoming an empire again. How are we situated within them? We're always a possession. When you think about it that way, doesn't that inform a lot of our problems? We always think of ourselves as a possession. And it's something that has carried through for centuries, the idea that we are subordinate to somebody else. Why do you think that is? <laughs> this is almost trite in a way to say, but it's because we have been passed from one empire to another. Within a 50-year period from 1896 to 1946, we basically had four flags over our country. We went but from then, Spain to the Philippines yeah. to America to Japan. And then what happens 20 years after that? Martial law. You know, what happens then after martial law? We're now we're in the neocolonial era. 86 on where the issues of terrorism, counterterrorism, the uh, imposition of soft power into the management of our country. Do you think it's also like if you think of yourself as a possession, yeah. it then frees you from the responsibility of having to steer your own fate? Yes, it does. You know, there are demographic reasons why we struggled and why we missed some windows because that 50 year period 
wiped out millions of Filipinos. There was a million Filipinos who died in Japanese occupation. There were hundreds of thousands of Filipinos who were killed in the Philippine-American War. There was a loss of intellectual, moral, and ethical capital and leadership in those periods. And that does inform how a nation sees itself. Rizal hit it on the nose when he said there are no slaves without tyrants. And, you know, just to paraphrase, if the slaves don't look at themselves as individuals worthy of freedom, they're just going to become a subject for another tyrant or they're going to become tyrants on their own. You mentioned yeah. like with China, right? It takes yeah. a lot of its sense of pride and identity from its past, I guess, imposing it in a way in its present. Right. At the same time, you have a country like the United States, which doesn't have as long a history as many European countries or indeed China. And yet it has a very strong sense of who they are, even if they are fighting amongst themselves. You know, there's (laughs) a, I guess, a shared concept of what it means to be an American from the United States. Here, it seems to be a little more difficult. The United States is a good example of of a manufactured history. Here, there are so many continuities. I mean, we still have our language. Can you imagine? We've gone through how many empires and we still have our languages. That's something special. That's something unique. Latin America doesn't have that. Their language and pre-Hispanic, you know, cultures were decimated. They're gone. The global history has really been written from a Western perspective. But even look at our maps. Our maps are designed so that what you're seeing is that the West, the West nations are equal or similar size to the East. It's soft power. It's a very distorted perception of the world. We had mentioned before, when we originally started talking about the maps of the world and the borders, these were created by, obviously, the colonizers, like even the Philippines. Borders of the Philippines were pretty much inherited by the natives. They were. There was an auction house recently that put a map up for auction. The way they sold it was as the map that created the Philippines. It was like the the birth map of the Philippines because it was the first map that had the Philippines on it or something like that. And that's how they sold it. Okay, well, that's one way to look at it. But again, it was created by somebody from the West. When do we actually reckon our birth? When do we say this is when we became who we are? We were born in this fire. We came out of this as us. Because right now, all of our births are imposed upon us. The United States wanted us mm-hmm. to be to be on July 4. Then there was this argument, and they moved it to June 12. What's that date really mean? Is that the date when we were born? When our nascent consciousness of a country was formed? It's definitely not when that map was drawn. So what is it? Where is it within our historical narrative? What is the struggle that we can then drill down to and say, here is when we were born? And this is what it means. As you said, no, if identities are taken from like the past or right. the way we define ourselves as opposed to something else, right. you can argue that some that can be something that is permanent. But then there are no, other philosophers who will argue that it isn't. Yeah, it's not no, it's a not fixed permanent. thing. It's and not it permanent. evolves, right? It evolves. It changes. And those changes typically reap havoc upon a country let's be honest you know that's your revolution that your redefining of yourself is a revolutionary act sometimes it's slower you know sometimes it's it's over time but you look at the french revolution enlightenment era these are all revolutionary acts to define yourself what's going on in the united states right now is in some sense revolutionary you know it's it's been a slow moving one but there is a revolt 
taking place against your dominant narratives or dominant cultures or dominant castes, whatever it is, to reformat how everybody looks at themselves, to make it hopefully more inclusive, to create identity, to bring people in from the margins, that's revolutionary in and of itself. Do you think ultimately what you're looking at here is going to lead to an end of the nation state as was defined in the 20th century? Yes. I mean, that's where we're definitely moving. You know, when you look at it, and I bring up the Basque example again, they're a nation, but they're an autonomous region within a political structure within the European Union. But they're still a nation. They're still a people who define themselves and, and says, this is who we are. This is where we are. This is where we come from. So, you know, do whatever the hell you want, but this is us. Is that where it's eventually going to go? Yeah. I mean, look at the outcome right now in the European Union. Mm-hmm. Brexit, when it occurred, was supposed to signal the end of the European Union, right? And yet what has happened is the European Union is stronger now than it ever was when Britain was part of them. And Britain itself is weak at the moment. Now, maybe it'll be a different story in five years, but right now you can actually say, look, the obstacles that were preventing the European Union from becoming a more integrated and stronger political union have kind of fallen by the wayside with Brexit and with a response to the COVID pandemic. They are now working together in ways that they never worked together before. And the European Union is an example of what you're talking about, which is the collapse, eventual collapse of borders, but the retention of, of a national identity. And it's a very conscious effort on their part. They made these decisions to prevent a World War One and a World War Two from ever happening again. So if, if you ask me eventually, is there going to be some sort of like a loss of these hard definitions of border? Yeah. I mean, I don't know how long it's going to take, but eventually I suspect it's where we're going to get to. And who knows how, how many minor disasters or crises or major mm-hmm. events are going to take us to get there. But we will get there. COVID, from a political perspective, has brought back delineations between nations, which maybe had fallen off before. But in the sense of addressing the pandemic from a global health perspective, there's actually been more cooperation now than there ever has been before. Even across borders, the ability to coordinate vaccine case studies, to coordinate medical responses outside of the politics, outside of the government, the political structures, ex-United States. The United States has actually been typically, historically, in the last you know 50 years, would have taken the lead on coordinating global response. And at the onset of the pandemic, we saw very much a lack of leadership. But somehow, through it all, there was coordination happening on the medical side of things. And I think that is actually quite inspiring in a sense, that despite these issues of political finger-pointing, of anger, of putting up these strong borders, there was still an attempt to coordinate a response on a medical interventionary side. The rest of the world has kind of come up to some sort of a relationship with each other, ex the people who you would have expected to be taking charge. In a sense, that kind of relying on one larger nation to be the emperor, as it were, of the world order. It is changing. Yes, it's changing. If anything, we're in what may be a historical epoch-making change in the transition from empires to something a little bit more egalitarian on a national sense. You know, I don't see us moving into another empire era. Let's put it that way. 
We don't know yet what the impact is going to be on on a national consciousness level with these nations that didn't look outward for assistance in addressing the pandemic, looked inward and have responded well. What is that going to do for them? What does that do for their identity? What does that do for their sense of place within the global order? What is that going to change? It's a small thing, but it could be a big thing in how the world changes. Would it still matter then if the world is going to come together in that sense and land borders will disappear, let's say, in the far off future, and there will be more cooperation? Will identity still need to be us? Yeah. I, I don't, yes. I think human nature as it is has an impulse to define yourself by your surroundings. There still will be some sense of definition by defining your national sensibility or your culture or your community by externalities. I think it's impossible to really avoid it. But the hope is that, that that's not the only thing that gates who you are, right? That fences off who you are from anybody else. Because if that's how it is, you're never going to have empathy. You're never going to have engagement. You're never going to have sympathy because you're always going to be looking at everybody else with suspicion. And it's the simplest tactic of an authoritarian is always to define a marginalized group as the other and as the danger. And by doing that, by delinking yourself from them, you create a sense of subhumanity in them. And that is the simplest and easiest way for an authoritarian to take control. That's what Trump has tried to do in the United States with immigrants. That's what Orban is doing with immigration. You know, immigrants are the, are the new boogeyman. And that's what we've done locally with uh, drug users, with the poor. We've defined them as the other. And in doing so, has made it very easy for us to subjugate them, to kill them, to abuse them. It's so easy to create rigid layers in society. It's so much harder to break that down. That's kind of where it comes back to. How do we allow for empathy to start being involved in our politics? That actually is identity. Empathy is rooted in identity. If you have created an identity for yourself as a people or as a country where you are top level of the caste, you are the boss, you don't see others as worthy of empathy or as equals. You just see them as something to subjugate or something to use or something to exploit or abuse. That's ultimately where it is, right? So identity, an identity that allows you to have empathy for others is kind of the goal because that's the only way that we all kind of move forward. And maybe that's a little romantic, maybe that's a little whatever, but that's really the fact. It's creating space for everyone. And if you look at it, let's go back to empire. What is empire other than exploitation along caste? Then you have the horizontal side of it, which is your expansion of borders and your definition of the empire as encompassing territory. Where in that allows for the idea of empathizing with the subjugated or your acquisitions? It doesn't. It works the same way now. When you create these ideas of rigid social structure, of rigid borders, of political entities that are rooted in militantism, rooted in, in ideology, you can't move past that. And you see everybody else on the other side as something, as an enemy. There was a British politician. They had interviewed her once and they were talking about exactly that, you know, that sense of us versus them and people feeling like there wasn't enough for them. So they needed to protect what they had and, you know, make the others feel marginalized and like they didn't deserve this or whatever it was. 
So she was asked whether she thought that the government had failed its citizens. And her answer was super interesting because she said, yes, I believe we have, but not in the sense that we can't provide for everyone. It's the fact that we've let everyone believe that there is a lack, that That's, there has to be is, a division. That is it. Raising up somebody else doesn't mean d- diminishing you. It's pretty much that. I mean, you know, we can share. And that's it for this episode of About That. I hope it's given you cause for thought. If you'd like to reach out, do send us an email at aboutthat.thepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for joining us. I'm Marga Ortigas. Stay safe and keep healthy.